Volume Two, Part Eleven of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Eleven, Paragraphs Fifty-Two through Seventy-Eight. Now the nature of this road is as I will show. All along it are the king's road stations and very good resting places, and the whole of it passes through country that is inhabited and safe. Its course through Lydia and Phrygia is of the length of twenty stages, and ninety-four and a half parasangs. Next after Phrygia it comes to the river Halys, where there is both a defile which must be passed before the river can be crossed, and a great fortress to guard it. After the passage into Cappadocia, the road in that land as far as the borders of Cilicia is of twenty-eight stages and one hundred and four parasangs. On this frontier you must ride through two defiles and pass two fortresses. Ride past these, and you will have a journey through Cilicia of three stages and fifteen and a half parasangs. The boundary of Cilicia and Armenia is a navigable river, the name of which is the Euphrates, in Armenia there are fifteen resting stages and fifty-six and a half parasangs. Here, too, there is a fortress. From Armenia the road enters the Matyanian land, in which there are thirty-four stages and one hundred and thirty-seven parasangs. Through this land flow four navigable rivers which must be passed by ferries, first the Tigris, then a second and a third of the same name, yet not the same stream nor flowing from the same source. The first mentioned of them flows from the Armenians, and the second from the Matyani. The fourth river is called Gindis, that Gindis which Cyrus parted once into three hundred and sixty channels. When this country is passed, the road is in the Scythian land, where there are eleven stages and forty-two and a half parasangs, as far as yet another navigable river, the Coaspes, on the banks of which stands the city of Susa. Thus the sum total of stages is one hundred and eleven. So many resting stages, then, are there in the journey up from Sardis to Susa. If I have accurately counted the parasangs of the royal road, and the parasang is of thirty furlongs length, which assuredly it is, then between Sardis and the king's abode called Memnonian there are thirteen thousand and five hundred furlongs, the number of parasangs being four hundred and fifty. If each day's journey is one hundred and fifty furlongs, then the sum of days spent is ninety, neither more nor less. Aristagoras of Miletus accordingly spoke the truth to Cleomenes the Lacedaemonian when he said that the journey inland was three months long. If any one should desire a more exact measurement, I will give him that too, for the journey from Ephesus to Sardis must be added to the rest. So then, from the Greek sea to Susa, which is the city called Memnonian, it is a journey of fourteen thousand and forty stages, for there are five hundred and forty furlongs from Ephesus to Sardis. The three months' journey is accordingly made longer by three days. When he was forced to leave Sparta, Aristagoras went to Athens, which had been freed from its ruling tyrants in the manner that I will show. First Hipparchus, son of Pisistratus, and brother of the tyrant Hippias, had been slain by Aristogiton and Harmodius, men of Gepherean descent. This was in fact an evil of which he had received a premonition in a dream. 
After this the Athenians were subject for four years to a tyranny not less, but even more absolute than before. Now this was the vision which Hipparchus saw in a dream. In the night before the Panathenia, he thought that a tall and handsome man stood over him uttering these riddling verses, O lion, endure the unendurable with a lion's heart. No man on earth does wrong without paying the penalty. As soon as it was day, he imparted this to the interpreters of dreams, and presently putting the vision from his mind, he led the procession in which he met his death. Now the Gepharian clan, of which the slayers of Hipparchus were members, claim to have come at first from Eretria, but my own inquiry shows that they were among the Phoenicians who came with Cadmus to the country now called Boeotia. In that country the lands of Tanagra were allotted to them, and this is where they settled. The Cadmians had first been expelled from there by the Argives, and these Gepharians were forced to go to Athens after being expelled in turn by the Boeotians. The Athenians received them as citizens of their own on set terms, debarring them from many practices not deserving of mention here. These Phoenicians who came with Cadmus and of whom the Gepharians were a part brought with them to Hellas, among other kinds of learning, the alphabet, which had been unknown before this, I think, to the Greeks. As time went on, the sound and the form of the letters were changed. At this time the Greeks who were settled around them were for the most part Ionians, and after being taught the letters by the Phoenicians, they used them with a few changes of form. In so doing, they gave to these characters the name of Phoenician, as was quite fair seeing that the Phoenicians had brought them into Greece. The Ionians have also from ancient times called sheets of papyrus skins, since they formerly used the skins of sheep and goats due to the lack of papyrus. Even to this day there are many foreigners who write on such skins. I have myself seen Cadmian writing in the temple of Ismenian Apollo at Thebes of Boeotia, engraved on certain tripods and for the most part looking like Ionian letters. On one of the tripods there is this inscription, Amphitryon dedicated me from the spoils of Teleboe. This would date from about the time of Laius, the son of Labdacus, grandson of Polydorus and great-grandson of Cadmus. A second tripod says, in hexameter verse, Seus the boxer, victorious in the contest, gave me to Apollo, the archer-god, a lovely offering. Seus, the son of Hippocoon, if he is indeed the dedicator and not another of the same name, would have lived at the time of Oedipus, son of Laius. The third tripod says, in hexameter verse again, Laodamus, while he reigned, dedicated this cauldron to Apollo, the shore of aim, as a lovely offering. During the rule of this Laodamus, son of Eteocles, the Cadmians were expelled by the Argives and went away to the Ancolaeus. The Gepharians were left behind, but were later compelled by the Boeotians to withdraw to Athens. They have certain set forms of worship at Athens, in which the rest of the Athenians take no part, particularly the rites and mysteries of Achaean Demeter. I have told both of the vision of Hipparchus' dream and of the first origin of the Gepharians, to whom the slayers of Hipparchus belonged. Now I must go further and return to the story which I began to tell, namely how the Athenians were freed from their tyrants. 
Hippias, their tyrant, was growing ever more bitter in enmity against the Athenians because of Hipparchus' death, and the Alcmaeonidae, a family of Athenian stock banished by the sons of Pisistratus, attempted with the rest of the exiled Athenians to make their way back by force and free Athens. They were not successful in their return, and suffered instead a great reverse. After fortifying Lipsidrium, north of Paeonia, they, in their desire to use all devices against the sons of Pisistratus, hired themselves to the Amphictyons for the building of the temple at Delphi, which exists now but was not there yet then. Since they were wealthy and like their fathers men of reputation, they made the temple more beautiful than the model showed. In particular, whereas they had agreed to build the temple of Tufa, they made its front of Parian marble. These men, as the Athenians say, established themselves at Delphi and bribed the Pythian priestess to bid any Spartans, who should come to inquire of her on a private or a public account, to set Athens free. Then the Lacedaemonians, when the same command was ever revealed to them, sent Oncomolius, the son of Aster, a citizen of repute, to drive out the sons of Pisistratus with an army despite the fact that the Pisistratidae were their close friends, for the gods' will weighed with them more than the will of man. They sent these men by sea on shipboard. Oncomolius put in at Phalerum and disembarked his army there. The sons of Pisistratus, however, had received word of the plan already, and sent to ask help from the Thessalians, with whom they had an alliance. The Thessalians, at their entreaty, joined together and sent their own king, Cineus of Conium, with a thousand horsemen. When the Pisistratidae got these allies, they devised the following plan. First they laid waste the plain of Phalerum, so that all that land could be ridden over and then launched their cavalry against the enemy's army. Then the horsemen charged and slew Ancimolius and many more of the Lacedaemonians, and drove those that survived to their ships. Accordingly, the first Lacedaemonian army drew off, and Ancimolius's tomb is at Alopaki in Attica, near to the Heracleum in Sinosarges. After this, the Lacedaemonians sent out a greater army to attack Athens, appointing as its general their king Cleomenes, son of Anaxandrides. This army they sent not by sea, but by land. When they broke into Attica, the Thessalian horsemen were the first to meet them. They were routed after only a short time, and more than forty men were slain. Those who were left alive made off for Thessaly by the nearest way they could. Then Cleomenes, when he and the Athenians who desired freedom came into the city, drove the tyrant's family within the Pelasgic Wall and besieged them there. The Lacedaemonians would never have taken the Pisistratid stronghold. First of all, they had no intention to blockade it, and secondly, the Pisistratidae were well furnished with food and drink. The Lacedaemonians would only have besieged the place for a few days and then returned to Sparta. As it was, however, there was a turn of fortune which harmed the one party and helped the other, for the sons of the Pisistratid family were taken as they were being secretly carried out of the country. When this happened, all their plans were confounded, and they agreed to depart from Attica within five days on the terms prescribed to them by the Athenians in return for the recovery of their children. Afterwards they departed to Sigeum on the Scamander. They had ruled the Athenians for thirty-six years and were in lineage of the house of Pylos and Neleus, 
born of the same ancestors as the families of Codrus and Melanthus, who had formerly come from foreign parts to be kings of Athens. It was for this reason that Hippocrates gave his son the name Pisistratus as a remembrance, calling him after Pisistratus the son of Nestor. This is the way, then, that the Athenians got rid of their tyrants. As regards all the noteworthy things which they did or endured after they were freed, and before Ionia revolted from Darius and Aristagoras of Miletus came to Athens to ask help of its people, of these I will first give an account. Athens, which had been great before, now grew even greater when her tyrants had been removed. The two principal holders of powers were Cleisthenes and Alcmeonid, who was reputed to have bribed the Pythian priestess, and Isagoras, son of Tisandrus, a man of a notable house, but his lineage I cannot say. His kinfolk, at any rate, sacrificed to Zeus of Caria. These men with their factions fell to contending for power. Cleisthenes was getting the worst of it in this dispute, and took the commons into his party. Presently he divided the Athenians into ten tribes instead of four as formerly. He called none after the names of the sons of Ion, Galeon, Egicores, Argades, and Hoples, but invented for them names taken from other heroes, all native to the country except Aeus. Him he added despite the fact that he was a stranger because he was a neighbor and an ally. In doing this, to my thinking, this Cleisthenes was imitating his own mother's father, Cleisthenes the tyrant of Sicyon, for Cleisthenes, after going to war with the Argives, made an end of minstrels' contest at Sicyon by reason of the Homeric poems, in which it is the Argives and Argos which are primarily the theme of the songs. Furthermore, he conceived the desire to cast out from the land Adrastus, son of Teleus, the hero whose shrine stood then as now in the very marketplace of Sicyon, because he was an Argive. He went then to Delphi, and asked the oracle if he should cast Adrastus out, but the priestess said in response, Adrastus is king of Sicyon, and you but a stone-thrower. When the god would not permit him to do as he wished in this matter, he returned home and attempted to devise some plan which might rid him of Adrastus. When he thought he had found one, he sent to Boeotian Thebes, saying that he would gladly bring Melanippus, son of Astacus, into his country, and the Thebans handed him over. When Cleisthenes had brought him in, he consecrated a sanctuary for him in the government house itself, where he was established in the greatest possible security. Now the reason why Cleisthenes brought in Melanippus, a thing which I must relate, was that Melanippus was Adrastus' deadliest enemy, for Adrastus had slain his brother Mesistius and his son-in-law Tidius. Having then designated the precinct for him, Cleisthenes took away all Adrastus' sacrifices and festivals and gave them to Melanippus. The Sicyonians had been accustomed to pay very great honor to Adrastus because the country had once belonged to Polybus, his maternal grandfather, who died without an heir and bequeathed the kingship to him. Besides other honors paid to Adrastus by the Sicyonians, they celebrated his lamentable fate with tragic choruses in honor not of Dionysus, but of Adrastus. Cleisthenes, however, gave the choruses back to Dionysus, and the rest of the worship to Melanippus. This, then, is what he did regarding Adrastus. 
but for the tribes of the Dorians, he changed their names so that these tribes should not be shared by Sicyonians and Argives. In this especially he made a laughing stock of the Sicyonians, for he gave the tribes names derived from the words donkey and pig, changing only the endings. The name of his own tribe, however, he did not change in this way, but rather gave it a name indicating his own rule, calling it Archeleoi, rulers of the people. The rest were Swinites, Assites, and Porkites. These were the names of the tribes which the Sicyonians used under Cleisthenes' rule and for sixty years more after his death. Afterwards, however, they took counsel together and both changed the names of the three to Hylaeus, Pamphile, and Dimanity, and added a fourth which they called Egyalaeus, after Egyalaeus, son of Adrastus. This is what the Sicyonian Cleisthenes had done, and the Athenian Cleisthenes, following the lead of his grandfather and namesake, decided, out of contempt, I imagine, for the Ionians, that his tribes should not be the same as theirs. When he had drawn into his own party the Athenian people, which was then debarred from all rights, he gave the tribes new names and increased their number, making ten tribe wardens in place of four, and assigning ten districts to each tribe. When he had won over the people, he was stronger by far than the rival faction. Isagoras, who was on the losing side, devised a counterplot, and invited the aid of Cleomenes, who had been his friend since the besieging of the Pisistratidae. It was even said of Cleomenes that he regularly went to see Isagoras' wife. Then Cleomenes first sent a herald to Athens demanding the banishment of Cleisthenes, and many other Athenians with him, the accursed as he called them. This he said in his message by Isagoras' instruction, for the Alcmaeonidae and their faction were held to be guilty of that bloody deed while Isagoras and his friends had no part in it. How the accursed at Athens had received their name I will now relate. There was an Athenian named Cylon, who had been a winner at Olympia. This man put on the air of one who aimed at tyranny, and gathering a company of men of like age, he attempted to seize the citadel. When he could not win it, he took sanctuary by the goddess's statue. He and his men were then removed from their position by the presidents of the naval boards, the rulers of Athens at that time. Although they were subject to any penalty save death, they were slain, and their death was attributed to the Alcmaeonidae. All this took place before the time of Pisistratus. When Cleomenes had sent for and demanded the banishment of Cleisthenes and the accursed, Cleisthenes himself secretly departed. Afterwards, however, Cleomenes appeared in Athens with no great force. Upon his arrival, he, in order to take away the curse, banished seven hundred Athenian families named for him by Isagoras. Having so done, he next attempted to dissolve the council, entrusting the offices of government to Isagoras' faction. The council, however, resisted him, whereupon Cleomenes and Isagoras and his partisans seized the Acropolis. The rest of the Athenians united and besieged them for two days. On the third day, as many of them as were Lacedaemonians left the country under truce. The prophetic voice that Cleomenes heard accordingly had its fulfillment, for when he went up to the Acropolis with the intention of taking possession of it, he approached the shrine of the goddess to address himself to her. 
the priestess rose up from her seat, and before he had passed through the doorway, she said, Go back, Lacedaemonian stranger, and do not enter the holy place, since it is not lawful that Dorians should pass in here. My lady, he answered, I am not a Dorian, but an Achaean. So without taking heed of the omen, he tried to do as he pleased, and was, as I have said, then again cast out together with his Lacedaemonians. As for the rest, the Athenians imprisoned them under sentence of death, among the prisoners was Timasitheus the Delphian, whose achievements of strength and courage were quite formidable. These men, then, were bound and put to death. After that, the Athenians sent to bring back Cleisthenes and the seven hundred households banished by Cleomenes. Then, desiring to make an alliance with the Persians, they dispatched envoys to Sardis, for they knew that they had provoked the Lacedaemonians and Cleomenes to war. When the envoys came to Sardis and spoke as they had been bidden, Artaphernes, son of Histaspes, viceroy of Sardis, asked them, What men are you, and where do you live, who desire alliance with the Persians? When he had received the information he wanted from the envoys, he gave them an answer, the substance of which was, that if the Athenians gave King Darius earth and water, then he would make an alliance with them. But if not, his command was that they should depart. The envoys consulted together, and in their desire to make the alliance, they consented to give what was asked. They then returned to their own country, and were there greatly blamed for what they had done. Cleomenes, however, fully aware that the Athenians had done him wrong in word and deed, mustered an army from the whole of the Peloponnesus. He did not declare the purpose for which he mustered it, namely to avenge himself on the Athenian people, and set up Isagoras, who had come with him out of the Acropolis, as tyrant. Cleomenes broke in as far as Eleusis with a great host, and the Boeotians, by a concerted plan, took Oinoi and Hisi, districts on the borders of Attica, while the Chalcidians attacked on another side and raided lands in Attica. The Athenians, who were now caught in a ring of foes, decided to oppose the Spartans at Eleusis and to deal with the Boeotians and Chalcidians later. When the armies were about to join battle, the Corinthians, coming to the conclusion that they were acting wrongly, changed their minds and departed. Later, Demaratus, son of Ariston, the other king of Sparta, did likewise, despite the fact that he had come with Cleomenes from Lacedaemon in joint command of the army, and had not till now been at variance with him. As a result of this dissension, a law was made at Sparta that when an army was dispatched, both kings would not be permitted to go with it. Until that time they had both gone together. But now one of the kings was released from service, and one of the sons of Tyndarus, too, could be left at home. Before that time, both of these also were asked to give aid and went with the army. So now at Eleusis, when the rest of the allies saw that the Lacedaemonian kings were not of one mind, and that the Corinthians had left their host, they too went off. This was the fourth time that Dorians had come into Attica. They had come twice as invaders in war, and twice as helpers of the Athenian people. The first time was when they planted a settlement at Megara, this expedition may rightly be said to have been in the reign of Codrus, the second and third when they set out from Sparta to drive out the sons of Pisistratus, 
and the fourth was now, when Cleomenes broke in as far as Eleusis with his following of Peloponnesians. This was accordingly the fourth Dorian invasion of Athens. When this force then had been ingloriously scattered, the Athenians first marched against the Chalcidians to punish them. The Boeotians came to the Europus to help the Chalcidians, and as soon as the Athenians saw these allies, they resolved to attack the Boeotians before the Chalcidians. When they met the Boeotians in battle, they won a great victory, slaying very many and taking seven hundred of them prisoner. On that same day the Athenians crossed to Euboea, where they met the Chalcidians too in battle, and after overcoming them as well, they left four thousand tenant farmers on the lands of the horse-breeders. Horse-breeders was the name given to the men of substance among the Chalcidians. They fettered as many of these as they took alive, and kept them imprisoned with the captive Boeotians. In time, however, they set them free, each for an assessed ransom of too many. The fetters in which the prisoners had been bound they hung up in the Acropolis, where they could still be seen in my time hanging from walls which the Persians' fire had charred opposite the temple which faces west. Moreover, they made a dedication of a tenth part of the ransom, and this money was used for the making of a four-horse chariot which stands on the left hand of the entrance into the outer porch of the Acropolis and bears this inscription, Athens with Chalcis and Boeotia fought, bound them in chains and brought their pride to naught. Prison was grief, and ransom cost them dear. One-tenth to Pallas raised this chariot here. So the Athenians grew in power, and proved, not in one respect only but in all, that equality is a good thing. Evidence for this is the fact that while they were under tyrannical rulers, the Athenians were no better in war than any of their neighbors, yet once they got rid of their tyrants, they were by far the best of all. This then shows that while they were oppressed, they were, as men working for a master, cowardly, but when they were freed, each one was eager to achieve for himself. End of Volume 2, Part 11